You are listening to the India in Focus podcast, jointly brought to you by the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University and the Times of India. Hello and welcome to COVID Chronicles, part of the Indian Focus podcast. My name is Sachit Balsari. Six months after the world's largest lockdown in India, India is uh, proud to declare that they had the world's largest recovery rate. Critiques will point out that India continues to under-test, that mortality rates are being underreported, and that the pandemic that was initially restricted to a few urban centers has now unnecessarily ravaged their countryside due to the forced migration as a result of the lockdown. Others have pointed out that India continues to test inadequately that the private sector was not adequately mobilized early on in the pandemic to scale up our testing strategies. And that what we're seeing in India is largely a manifestation of decades of neglect and lack of investment in both the medical and the public health sectors. Joining us to help decipher what is going on in India is Professor Anup Malani. Anup is a Lee and Brenna Freeman professor at the University of Chicago Law School and a professor at the Pritzker School of Medicine. Welcome, Anup. Glad to be here, Satya. Anu, so what, what was India's response like? Was it strong or was it weak? Did the government in India, especially the central government, overplay its hand or was it inept? Um, in hindsight, I think it was strong, uh, but unnuanced. And I think the main criticism, criticism might be the pace at which it uh, accumulated information and adapted. So uh, if you see the epidemic, I think the date that you want to start something like January 29th, that's when the first set of cases are seen in Kerala, some students coming back from Wuhan. Uh, but as it turns out, there are travelers that are ending up from different parts of the world, including Iran, uh, coming into states in northern India. Okay, so you basically have one week during which there's uh, a variety of introductions in India. The first month, uh, uh, India responds gradually, but mainly through travel restrictions, which kind of makes sense. I mean, you're trying to get a sense of what's going on. I don't think the world was aware of how severe this problem was. Um, information wasn't traveling uh, as fast as one would hope uh, from the origin. So this continues for about six weeks uh, into mid uh, to third week of March. Uh, and then the government uh, really begins to, to start taking some serious moves. Uh, so the most important is the Janta curfew uh, that occurs uh, on the 22nd of March. Uh, that's a voluntary curfew all day, but uh, compliance is incredibly high uh, as measured by mobility data from various sources. Then there's a day off, and then all of a sudden the prime minister declares a lockdown, a nationwide lockdown that starts on the 24th and continues. It was supposed to be a short-term lockdown, but it was extended repeatedly. Um, now, what's interesting about this is if you trace confirmed cases, uh, and then you look at um, the actual severity of the lockdown as measured by uh, mobility patterns, uh, you see a massive gap. And even if you think you're woefully under testing in India during this period, which I think is a fair concern, it's true in every country at this point, the reduction in mobility is tremendous. It's more severe than the United States. It's remarkable. Uh, and so what you see is the country taking an effort to basically stop this epidemic but incredibly high economic costs. So we see daily laborers' wages fall uh, roughly 90% uh, during this period from say January. Uh, and it takes some time, I think, 
before you get confirmed cases up to a level where you think, oh, wow, was that, was that lockdown required? But I, I want to say two things. The first thing is, um, when we look at the economic data, as it turns out, even before the government responds harshly, individuals start curbing their economic activity. So even in February, when you just see relatively mild travel restrictions, you see economic activity decline meaningfully, including wages and consumption declining meaningfully. Uh, people are taking this seriously, more so than say the press might let on uh, or regulation uh, might let on. Um, of course, it's much more severe once the government declares that it's uh, junta curfew and then the, then the proper lockdown. Um, and you see this, this massive reduction. Now at the beginning, you know, it, again, if you look in hindsight, it seems like it is too much. Uh, why would you shut down this much of the economy for such a small threat? Um, and, and I think the, the problem here is that in hindsight, we know that it doesn't get severe until a little bit later. But at the time, it actually makes sense. It makes sense all around the world. The main, I think the most kind of reasonable justification for these lockdown measures was let's shut down. This looks like it could be a major threat. Let's take a few weeks, a month, two months to assess the risk and prepare our hospitals, prepare our medical facilities, uh, prepare our distribution systems for whatever it may be, care, uh, preparedness, et cetera, um, and then slowly release. Now, India does slowly release. Uh, so if you go, move forward, uh, so you go through basically April, uh, uh, and then you get to the beginning of May, uh, on May 4th, India begins to release. And it basically adopts a decentralized approach where it says districts that are more severe, we're going to rank as uh, color them red and districts that are in the middle orange and then uh, districts at the bottom green, largely rural districts, and then we're going to have different levels of restrictions across those. Now, that makes a lot of sense uh, uh, during this period, but I think the main criticism that you can make is that we weren't prepared. We did change the degree of lockdown. But it's not clear that we ramped up the hospitals the way we needed to, that we had the proper medical facilities. Um, we didn't do a great job. In addition, there was a lot of heterogeneity differences across states. States like Kerala, well ahead of the curve. Other states, uh, and I don't, I don't mean to, to name names, but there are a number of states uh, uh, often in the north, but not only in the north, uh, that were behind. Uh, there, I think there's roughly a correlation with, with a few exceptions like Bihar, there's a correlation between how well performing generally a state is uh, outside of COVID and how well performing it was during COVID, uh, particularly on, on the health frontier. And so you saw that. So when you get to May, a lot of places are unprepared. Some places are somewhat prepared, Kerala being the best probably, uh, and we start gradually relaxing. And then in May, you see this critical political shift. The central government was running things up until say mid-May and then when you had the second modification of uh, uh, in May of the lockdown, you've already become decentralized in, in the sense that you're having different rules for different places. You start beginning to hand over the decision-making about whether you're a red zone, a green zone, or an intermediate orange zone to the states. And so it's really critical at that point that the state bureaucracy is ready to handle these de this decision-making. Um, and that's the, the, the change you see. What's really amazing though, is that economic lockdown really sticks uh, for some time longer as measured by mobility. Things are creeping back up, but economically we are still way behind. And I think, I think that the data that are slowly coming out tell us that the Indian economy took a massive, massive hit. Uh, and uh, if you combine that with the serological data, some of which we've done in, in Mumbai and Karnataka suggests that it's not clear we really stopped the spread 
And so I think a, a natural question that people are going to have is, was it how handled in hindsight? Now, ex ante, it's a much harder question. If you're in the driver's seat, it's much more difficult. But ex ante, we have high rates of spread and we have mass economic costs. The only solace is that the death rate was low. If India's death rate were the US death rate, I think we would be uh, much more uh, traumatized. We would suffer both the economic harm and the health harm. But fortunately, we avoided the health harm fortuitously, um, but we're still suffering the economic harm. And what's really heartening to see is that I think that's a, a realization that's spreading. And we're understanding that the key thing right now is how do we get India back into growth mode? And the reason why that's important, I think, is twofold. First is the economic uh, cost of the lockdown disproportionately, vastly disproportionately affected the poor. So Anup, you know, we're, we've all sort of seen pictures and videos of these migrant workers making the perilous journey back, back to rural India. W what do the data show? Um, how were folks affected? It's unbelievable if you compare, for example, salaried workers who saw maybe a 30% drop uh, in income, and especially white collar, versus laborers who saw a 90% drop in income. And they were least able to handle it because they don't have a, a store of savings or the ability to borrow. Um, so that's the first reason, hugely economically disproportionate. And the second thing is, as you know, uh, and, you, and you've been thinking about also, is that you know, India is at this critical period where it's still got a young population, mean age of 29. Um, that's going to change. It's going to become like China with an uh, aging population. We have one, two, three decades, really, to, to kind of do catch-up growth effectively. Um, and losing it right in the middle of that, that, that demographic boom, uh, boom, I should say, is very costly. So, so Anup, you've, you've, you've summarized um, a, a fairly uh, vigorous uh, centralized response in the, couple of, um, in, in the first couple of months of the lockdown. And then you allude to this transition to a decentralized response. Uh, critiques have said that maybe a, a cop-out the government was aggressive. Um, it found that it um, that its interventions had not necessarily worked as it had hoped to, and and uh, basically backpedaled and sort of left the states to to fend for themselves. Um, the the uh, counter to that, of course, is as you correctly pointed out, uh, that in in hindsight. Um, of course, the, the lockdown seems to have been excessive, but in February and March, when you were facing the potential of one-sixth of humanity, um, you know, faced with a pandemic that we did not know much about, uh, that it was important uh, to be aggressive, because you would, uh, had they not done that, I, I can see uh, many of us in the public health community also criticized the government for not, not being assertive and not taking an action. But what you point out is that the point of doing the lockdown is not just to quell transmission, but is to buy time to prepare. Is it realistic to even expect the government of India to prepare? Can they compensate for seven decades of neglect um, in both the medical and the public health circles? What, what could you do? As a physician, I look at what preparedness means, and I do not see how we will produce um, overnight or in a span of two months uh, the physicians that you need uh, to staff the ICUs, the public health capacity you need to do the testing, um, or even improve the quality of the medical care that exists in India. 
Um, is, is it reasonable to say that India should have prepared in those two months? I think that there's two sides of the preparedness. On the one hand, it's getting information, and the second is doing something about that information. Um, I think your question uh, and your skepticism about what India could have done is appropriate for the medical side, meaning uh, we were still learning about uh, how to, uh, what the proper medical treatment protocol was. Uh, so you remember the discussion about ventilators and how to use those ventilators and the like. Uh, we were still learning about and still don't know enough about the extent to which uh, centralizing care actually spreads the epidemic uh, as opposed to quelling it. That is to say how much we should be doing this at, at PHCs rather than at district hospitals and the like. Um, so those are things that we need to learn about and, and I don't think we can expect a lot of the Indian government. Uh, I think the main on the, on the treatment side, I think that would have, what would have been nice is to acknowledge that three quarters of care in India is done by the private sector. Uh, and yet most of our response was on the, the one quarter public sector component and to expect it to have treated all of India is, is tough without knowing what the scope of the epidemic, the distribution of the epidemic uh, was and also having a good grasp of the labor force that could participate, the health labor force. So I think I would have liked to have seen the government call in the main hospital chains or uh, at least some components of, of, the, of the private sector and say, look, how can we tackle this problem together? Uh, what sort of uh, uh, mobilization uh, can we do and what would it cost? And in some sense, you know, for a country that can't do a lot of social protection because it doesn't have a lot of, of cash on hand, if I had to spend the cash, I would have spent the cash on getting that part right because that's how you keep the death rate down, especially when you don't know what's causing the death. And remember at this time, this is when we are hearing about Italy, right? And Italy's incredibly high rates. And then New York and New York's incredibly high rates. And you're thinking places that are more advanced for getting higher death rates, that's where you'd wanna focus. Um, okay, so that's that's the treatment component, but, but there's, and I'll, I'll give the government a little bit of slack there. That was tough. Uh, I, I think that that's um, uh, hard to criticize. But on the testing side, I'm, I, I have, a lot less sympathy. Um, first is you have incredible labs in India. Uh, you and I know about a number of the people that run these labs. Uh, we know that they're capable of scaling. They have been capable of scaling. Uh, even to this day, they do a better job in some respects uh, than the United States. In India, if you want to do an RT-PCR, you can get it done in 48 hours with the results. In the US and Chicago, you can't get it for six days. Uh, so it's possible for India to do that. They could have tested, they just, they didn't. Uh, and, and the reason they didn't, um, I, I think I'm going to do partly administrative, uh, uh, partly it's regulatory. So let's focus on the regulatory. India for a good number of weeks had in place tariffs on testing products and inputs at a time when you did massively scale testing. And the explanation given was, well, we want to encourage domestic testing. But we didn't have the testing capacity. We needed to import the ability of these reagents and the specific tests. Um, at least until we have a domestic test producer, we should be able to import those tests and labs do, let labs do that. The second is the government was very slow to certify labs. Um, at this point, I would have gone ahead and tried to certify as many labs that are close as possible because some testing is better than no testing at all, regardless of whether you're doing track and trace, just to know how the epidemic is spreading. Um, and that's another thing that we could have done. The third thing is that I'm not sure we had great data management systems. Uh, I've worked with a number of states. Uh, I've seen the process of reporting to the center, and I am not entirely confident that that data going in was clean, well-organized, actionable. Um, I'm not sure it is completely to this day. 
Uh, I think characteristic of this is the fact that there were tests done at the center and the results weren't shared with the population. Then those things put together make us think we were just fell short on testing. Um, and there we have no excuse. This is not a hard problem to solve. We may not have had perfectly sensitive tests, but again, some data is better than no data. And we have statistical techniques to correct for this, at least at the population level. And let me leave you with one thought, which tells me that we're still highly inadequate. What we need now as we prepare for the next phase, which is not just release from lockdown, but setting up for vaccine distribution, uh, we need to know population level data, what fraction of the population uh, in each area, district, sub-district, uh, even ward level in cities actually have higher and lower prevalence because that helps determine the vaccination priorities. And we do very little population level testing. We're still doing this contact trace, uh, hospitals, travelers. Um, there is more and more representative testing, but we really need to kind of see how that's done and make that data available, not just to everybody in the state that's acting, the administrators, but the population so that they can begin to determine when it's safe to return to work, uh, what, what vaccination priorities ought to be. So I, I think we're, we, we could do a lot more on testing. Um, one last point. I don't think testing is the solution, meaning I don't think if you test, you're done. I think what we really care about is doing testing intelligently, uh, given what we want to do with that testing, whether it's treatment, suppression, vaccination. Um, India is not alone in not linking the testing to that and thus doing kind of an unguided policy where the only goal is to increase testing per million. Testing per million is not the end. It's intelligent testing that's the, the end, but we're still falling short. Anup, you raised several important um, issues here. This um, challenge with sort of not taking advantage of the lockdown to prepare adequately, some of which, as, as we both agree, it was just impossible to, to do in India, especially on, on the clinical side, though one may argue that um, the centralization of the response and the focus on tertiary care uh, continued for longer than, than, and, than it should have, while it was um, becoming apparent that, that not um, all communities were going to face what Italy and Spain were by May and June. Uh, the focus continued to and does in many pockets in India remain falsely on tertiary care. But you also then uh, raise this issue of, of um, not um, collecting and applying uh, data adequately. And finally, this point about testing not being a solution, that testing also be being um, a critical component of this link of interventions, you know, testing to quarantine, testing to isolate, testing to determine whether to contain or not, um, testing to figure out vaccine priorities. And what I hear you um, say through all of this is that it seems like the right kind of expertise wasn't at the table. There is There are consistently uh, measures done that seem to be uh, knee-jerk uh, in response to what the world was doing, what seemed to be um, the politically expedient thing to do, maybe even with the right intentions. But there were scientists um, in India that could have made the response more nuanced as, as you know, it was one of your um, opening sentences that, that it was strong, but not nuanced. Um, and, and there are several that have pointed out that the expertise for that nuance for bringing to bear the latest evidence and science existed 
um, in India um, and in addition uh, within the Indian expat community that had access to some of this cutting edge knowledge uh, more rapidly uh, than, than the govern government in India only by proximity to the institutions um, that were driving these scientific discoveries elsewhere in the world. And, and these scientists both um, within the country and outside who wanted to uh, engage and influence the decision-making in India uh, seemed to have um, encountered multiple barriers. Um, why do you think that is the case? Yeah, I think you raise a very important issue. Let me just add one more fact to your list, uh, which is just a casual screening of the discussion of COVID around the world, especially in the United States. Uh, if, you, if you look at the people that are thought leaders, and then you look at their background, you'll find a high percentage are from South Asia, in particular, also from India. And you would think, wow, you've got a number of people doing critical research, whether it's on the medical side, trying to figure out how to treat and vaccination, or whether you're talking about people uh, working through uh, suppression policy um, uh, or thinking about uh, epidemiology. Uh, there's no shortage of Indians. Now, not all of them are prepared to, to just go and help the Indian government, but I, I'm gonna guess a very high number are. Um, and, and to me, I think one of the, 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 the losses is that we, we aren't able or we're not willing uh, to lean on that group. We do to some extent. Obviously, you and I uh, are both sitting here in the United States, but we are involved in response in India in a meaningful way. But there's plenty of us uh, here that I think more that would be willing to be involved if they were accessed. So I think that that's one thing that that's uh, too bad. India is very fortunate compared to many other countries to have its expats be so uh, prepared for this, uh, but yet... Um, not relied on as much as they could. So I, th I think that's an issue. But let me, let's, this goes back to an old issue in India. India has two things I think that are very, uh, that it's inherited as part of its political culture. One is a distrust of the private sector. And we talked about some of the, the problems that created. And then the other thing was a, a kind of a nationalism that says we can do this and we don't need uh, foreign intervention, foreign help. Uh, we can come up with India's solutions. And, and unfortunately that it, it meant that, that and unfortunately, it is the case that our expats are also counted as foreign in many cases. And so we're losing out on a lot of resources. Now, by the way, when it's convenient, we do like to bring back the capital that the expats have. But I think when it comes to expertise, we are not as uh, uh, open. India is not as open uh, as I think would have been helpful in this regard. Um, so those two things, those cultural things, the, the anti-private sector and anti-foreign. And I understand the history that leads to that. Um, I just don't, I think we need to adapt with the times. Uh, I think those were two big issues uh, that, that stopped us from, from doing a better job of getting expertise. Anup, you've studied systems um, around, around the world. What is it about um, governance in India correctly that while, while you're right about hesitation to engage with quote unquote outside experts, um, the government did um, at its decision-making uh, table across uh, state governments and central government have um, US-based consulting companies with you know, huge operations in India um, informing uh, critical public health uh, decision-making for these governments without the right expertise embedded within their teams. And so there is a little bit of discordance there where 
the articulated uh, nationalism, the um, inability uh, or the unwillingness to share information and data transparently with either the population or with scientific colleagues uh, outside is countered by what seems like this bizarre presence of consulting companies in, in uh, decision rooms um, uh, in, in governments around the world. This is not an India-specific problem. We've, we've seen that in, in the United States. Um, how best can scientists find a seat at the table? Yeah, so I, I learned two things uh, on, uh, let me first talk about consulting firms and then answer that last question about how scientists get a seat at the table. I learned two things that I think are very important uh, in both as an observer and involved and a, and a participant in, in, in response, COVID response in India. The first is, you know, I think I know why consultants have a seat at the table. And, and that is that, and, and this is the most kind of uh, benign and kind of um, uh, charitable explanation, but I think it's also true is that um, when there isn't a crisis, uh, we're often not involved in day-to-day -day running of the government whereas consulting firms are putting themselves out there and engaging, uh, even when it's a, a boring campaign or a boring project, they're there doing the work and they're building the relationship. So that, that relation, investment relationship during peacetime really means that when you're in wartime, i.e. COVID hits, uh, if the government is trying to figure out who it trusts to actually do the work, you can see that it might trust the, the, the consulting firm that's been working with it for the last five years, then some scientist that just comes along and says, I know exactly what to do. So that's one. The second is, unfortunately, consulting firms are in the business of selling services. They're not in the business of um, saying, hey, I actually don't know the answer. <laughs> they have a strongly ingrained culture that says, I can always answer. Uh, that's what sells. Uh, and, and when the pandemic hit and they didn't have the expertise, and the honest to goodness truth is very few of us did, uh, they didn't admit that they didn't. Uh, they didn't have a lot of epidemiologists on staff. They didn't have people that had worked with infectious disease on staff, and yet they kept on saying they could do it. Uh, they put the same old consultants that were thinking about where to locate hospitals uh, in order to maximize revenue to think about where to put hospitals for COVID response. And that's not the same question. Um, and I think that their inability to say no was an issue. And even worse, their inability to go out and get the expertise. They could have, you know, a simple solution could have been they go out and identify the scientists that are best able. You know, think of like, classic Hollywood movies where the, the government goes and gets the top-notch scientist, right? Well, you know, the consulting firms could have done that too. It's not hard where you can go to the university web pages and figure out who's written, go to Google Scholar, but they didn't do that. And I think one of the reasons they didn't do that is because they're in this world where they're worried about IP and academia and scientists are not as worried about IP uh, as, as, uh, uh, as these individuals are. And they're also worried about payment. Uh, they want to make sure they get paid, but they're not necessarily interested in paying the scientists. Little did they know that a lot of the scientists I don't think really cared about getting paid. This is the first time their research was being, is practically important. And they were, I think, willing to sacrifice sleep and money to help out. And I, I don't think the consulting firms did their part. I'm hoping that next time that'll change, but I, I think that's an issue. So then the, the question really you asked is, how do scientists get a seat at the table? And um, before I answer that question, I just want to point out that we have our own problems as scientists. There are a lot of us, we don't all agree. And sometimes we speak out of our own uh, area of expertise. Sometimes we expand our expertise to stop other people who have good points from making their points. 
Um, we usually have a solution to this. It's called the workshop culture in academia, where you and I from different departments will debate and maybe I'll make some good points, maybe I'll make some bad points, you'll point them out to me, but we'll limit the conclusions based upon that, that dialogue. Unfortunately, when we went into the public health sphere, we didn't take our workshop culture with us. And so you had some scientists claiming that they knew the answer and other scientists saying the opposite claiming they knew the answer, had the answer. So what that meant is that governments, even the ones that were open to talking to experts would have experts advising two different things and they didn't know and they didn't have the expertise to know which expert was right. That's a fundamental issue. And, and we need to overcome that. We as scientists need to overcome that problem uh, before we can expect the government to go and talk to us. I know that's thank you. Thank you for raising that, because at this moment in the United States, you have the White House um, embracing the Barrington Declaration, uh, which, um, you know, to to remind our, our South Asian listeners is um, a position that um, these lockdowns and containment strategies were the wrong, wrong measures and, and these sort of draconian uh, uh, quarantine measures um, are not the way uh, to address this pandemic. Uh, three scientists in, in particular have come forward um, along with the support of others to say that that maybe uh, the route that, that Sweden went, uh, but modified with a particular focus on, on protecting the vulnerable, right? So the, what, what Kerala had said was reverse quarantine. Let's figure out where the elderly are. Let's keep them safe and maybe let the others um, inadvertently catch the infection. Uh, so that you build, build herd immunity, which is the exact opposite of what several other scientists, the majority of the scientific community is saying currently that that is, uh, that is not the right approach and, and that it is not uh, necessarily feasible. There are nuances to protecting uh, the vulnerable that are operationally hard when you start thinking about the rest of the world and, and joint families and multi-generational families. Uh, it's, not, it's not really practical to, um, uh, to implement that. The diversity of opinions that the scientific community has is healthy, but governments then need the capacity to sift through the information that um, is, is uh, being presented to them. Both you and I have had an opportunity to um, train in and work in uh, two very different academic environments, both in, in India and, and the US. And, and through sort of my lens of, of medical training in India, uh, I am, am deeply concerned that uh, the quality of, of training has continued to deteriorate. We do not have the capacity necessary to rise to, to these kinds of, of challenges. Um, in particular, when you talk about um, how the data were mishandled, in addition to the nationalism around the data, the idea that the data should be concealed, uh, there is, uh, you know, some kind of um, a patronizing attitude as well about the data, where the data are collected by. Actually, let me bring that up um, separately because that's a different point. <clears throat> um, you allude to uh, challenges with um, data collection and application. And my concern is that there just is not the right kind of training available in the medical and public health community in, in India to process these data. If you think about where the models were coming out of in India, they were not coming out of the medical college campuses, but they were coming out of the IITs um, and, and our computer science schools. 
all excellent experts uh, in modeling, but none of them infectious disease epidemiologists. Um, and, and this problem won't, won't, get, won't get fixed um, unless there are serious investments to scale the expertise we need in, in medicine and public health. How, how do you envision this at this moment in India with the current government and their willingness to engage with the private sector, which they failed to do during this pandemic response? What are sort of the practical regulatory changes uh, you would like to see that would provide the expertise um, India needs to face these kinds of challenges? Before I answer that question, I, I, wanna, I wanna quibble with one thing we have a temptation to view the central government as one entity, the central Indian government as one entity. And anybody that's dealt with the central government in the last six months knows that there isn't just one entity. There are a lot of different components, Ministry of Health, Niti, uh, 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 Niti Aayog, ICMR, the PMO, uh, just a lot of different groups. And they are not always uh, 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 rowing in the same direction. And so the challenge that the PMO faces is how do you get everybody rolling in the same direction? And to be clear, this is the exact same problem in the US. Uh, whether you think about the head of the, the government, it should be the Congress or whether it should be uh, the president. Let's just stick with the president for a second. You know, Whatever you think of the president's policies, one of the challenges that the executive had, and it was an executive that would have that problem even if you look under the previous president, um, is how do you keep the FDA, the CDC, uh, uh, and all the different parts of CMS all rolling uh, in the same direction. And it's difficult because each of those people think they have expertise. Each of them want to have control. Uh, you know, you're selecting for people that are, we're leaders, we can do this. Um, and, and sometimes they have even more base concerns about, you know, uh, making sure they get credit. So I think that that made it really complicated. And I think one of the, the, the things that we saw was that sometimes one part of the government would say, look, how do we address the other part of the government? and get them to be more cooperative or do more of this or less of that. Um, and, and I think that that means that it's very hard to just say the central government didn't do enough. Okay, that was a long uh, quibble, uh, but hopefully it made clear that the central government is not a monolith. They have their own issues. Uh, and I think that's a, an entire discussion in and of itself. Um, but I, th I think you're right. I mean, what was really interesting about this was, and by the way, this is not unique to, the, to India, but, but more so in India. If you looked for quantitative modelers, like the people that could have checked to see if the Imperial College uh, uh, model was appropriate for India, apply it to India if appropriate, uh, et cetera, um, uh, there's just not a lot of Indian epidemiological modelers out there in the world. Um, uh, they do exist in Europe and the United States. They weren't always brought in. I think there's one or two examples that were brought in. Uh, but they weren't uh, all brought in. Um, even in the US, there wasn't enough modelers to go around. And so you do see, for example, in my home state of Illinois, uh, it was a paraphysicists, I think, at uh, University of Illinois uh, that came in and did predominant modeling, predominantly the modeling for Illinois. Now there are, and good friends of mine uh, could have done the work. There's a separate question of why the government relied on physicists when they could have de dealt with epidemiologists. Um, but there was a shortage even in the United States, just much more severe in India. To correct that going forward is easier than to, to, to fix the problem in hindsight, right? Um, we didn't know that there was gonna be a massive pandemic. And so India was caught unawares. If you look at East Asian governments, they had SARS. Even in India, the most successful government was Kerala who had Nipah. So they had some prior experience and they knew they should be prepared. 
I think that there's a chance we'll be prepared for COVID 2.0. Hopefully, you know, it never comes, but uh, uh, I think we will be more prepared. And part of it's going to be those physicists are, are really helpful, actually, because they have modeling skills. It's just they need to also work with microbiologists, biologists, pure epidemiologists to see what aspects of those models are good and what aspects were bad. And one of the things that I worry about is that the, the people that came in to do, that just kind of picked up modeling really quickly at the last second, they don't understand that, that, that the epidemiologists have been working, quantitative epidemiologists that have been working for decades on this, realize that there are things that a models, models are good for and things that the models are not good for. And so they are more likely to take, the physicists are more likely to take the model seriously, whereas the epidemiologists understand their caveats. Now, that may not be the impression that you get given, given what came out of the Imperial College, the kind of the, the UK modelers. They seem to say models solve everything. I think that that's an incorrect view. They're insightful, but of limited use in terms of forecasting past a short amount of time. Um, uh, unfortunately, a few small epidemiologists kind of took it really far. Uh, and so that, that might have given physicists a sense that we could also go uh, uh, nuts with modeling. Uh, but I think the proper answer is it's useful, but it should be cabined by the data. Uh, when the data tells you your model is wrong, you have to alter the model first and not just stick with it. You know, in um, disaster medicine, um, I know that the challenge always is that you um, cannot, uh, it, it is hardest to prove um, when you are very efficient, right? So as if, if you are investing in disaster preparedness in mitigation and in response, um, it is um, hard to prove the counterfactual. You will either avert disasters or uh, you will not have the sort of morbidity, mortality, suffering that you would have had were you not prepared. And so it is very hard once the disasters pass to convince governments, societies, communities to invest in these uh, disasters. Memory is, is, is short and people, people forget. We've seen this with floods, hurricanes, and earthquakes um, around the world. There is a lot of attention um, focused on uh, disasters in the immediate aftermath of events. But for rare events, for, for rare events, it is extremely hard to continue to engage either societal or government interests um, in these kinds of, of investments. Um, it is even harder in, in uh, societies um, where uh, the socioeconomic pie uh, is not very generous and, and you have to prioritize um, resource allocation. You know, do you invest in infectious disease epidemiologists in India or do you uh, invest in figuring out um, you know, how to solve uh, the hunger crisis we expect in, in 2021. And others may argue that these are, are, are false uh, choices. In your experience, um, how best do you incentivize uh, institutions to prepare for these long-term uncertainties? Um, is it uh, the government that will step up to do this? Should it be the private sector. How do you how do you fix this problem uh, to prepare for the future when there are so many pressing emergencies um, that are staring us in the face in India? Uh, that's a great and I think that the, arguably the question of the hour. Uh, uh, once you look past uh, uh, the current crisis, so I will say that there is. I'm, I'm going to give a, a glib answer. Uh, the way to get a government to best prepare is for the government to experience the crisis unprepared. Then they'll change. 
Uh, I think uh, the example I gave before was SARS in East Asia. Actually, before SARS in East Asia, it's the avian flu crises that occurred with regularity since 1997. I think really made the East, East Asian governments much more prepared uh, because they saw it over and over again. Uh, now, the next best thing is not to experience it yourself, but to see somebody else experience it unprepared and then learn, hey, you know, uh, if we don't prepare, we could end up like this other government that did it poorly. In some ways, COVID was helpful in that regard because some governments were more prepared, some were less prepared, and you saw a difference in outcomes. So that's going to be a good signal. Um, but I think that there's some crises that especially are far off that are very difficult. I think, you know, the, the elephant in the, in the room is climate change. Uh, and and the, the problem with climate change is that it's not here yet. I mean, it's here, but it's not here in the sense of sea levels have just risen three feet uh, level. And as a result, it's very hard to get people motivated. And it's not like governments are just sitting around doing nothing with the money. They have concerns. There's global poverty and now it's going to be worse. Um, and they have to deal with that. And other than climate change, there's also, by the way, pandemics uh, and things like that, let alone military threats and security threats. Um, I think the fundamental problem that governments face is, is the following. There are 100 different threats, 50 different threats, and you only have the money and resources to deal with 10. And you have to choose which 10. And everybody, there's, a, there's every crisis that we've ever had, there's always somebody that says, I warned about this, right? Uh, and, and the problem is that's true about every crisis. Somebody is warning about every crisis and the, the world could possibly face, and the government doesn't know which is the most serious. And I think what it ends up doing, uh, not always intentionally, sometimes because of uh, just inability to act, is they wait until a crisis occurs to figure out, well, that's what we should pay attention to. So let me give you a great example, even though it turned out disastrously. Take the United States in 9-11. People have been worrying about ter terrorism in the United States for some time. In the 1990s, we even had an event in 1994. People didn't take it very seriously. Then 9-11 happened, and look, the entire government began to take it seriously. You know, the way you did air travel changed. We started two wars in the United States. We've made a big difference. Arguably, it was highly ineffective or maybe even counterproductive. But the thing is, we didn't act before. And then we overspent later. This is a very common thing. By the way, 2008 financial crisis, global crisis, but particularly in the United States, we set up a bunch of rules uh, about uh, systemic risk. We didn't do it before. It's not like people didn't warn before. Even Raghu Rajan was warning about it before. Um, we wait till after. And we're going to do the same thing with COVID. So I think that, that, that we will be better prepared for COVID 2.0. Um, I will tell you the thing that I'm most thankful for, and this is going to seem really weird, is that COVID wasn't worse. What I mean by that is the following. COVID is bad. It's worse than flu. Even if you don't buy it on the death rate, you should buy it on the fraction of the population that are infected. The right comparison for COVID isn't the seasonal flu. It's the 1968 first introduction of H3, H3N2. It's the first introduction of a global flu that's really the comparison. And then, you know, you can see even then, COVID's pretty bad uh, in terms of total death rates, uh, uh, total deaths around the world. Um, but the thing is, it could have been much worse. And what I'm hopeful for is that we learn from COVID 1.0. And then when the more severe COVID comes along, and God forbid it, you know, it does, we will actually uh, be in a position to do something, including all the things that I think you're mentioning, which is take advantage of scientists, uh, uh, and, and kind of like leverage their expertise, resolve our own conflicts first, but leverage that expertise. And then second, you know, figure out how we're going to leverage the, the private sector and get the private sector to be appropriately modest, but helpful. Thank you. 
um, before before you said the last sentence, I, I was uh, wondering where you were going with it and was wondering if an economist from the University of Chicago was calling for more regulation and stronger government. Anup, I wanted to go back to the question about data, because as, as scientists, that is something that, that we, we, we prize uh, dearly. It is you know, the foundation of the evidence we generate. Um, access to data has been a struggle in India for a variety of reasons. It is uh, not only the uh, lack of capacity to generate good quality uh, data, especially uh, clinical and public health data, largely because our digital health ecosystem um, is, is nascent, uh, but also because all healthcare workers are overburdened, whether they're uh, community health workers, you know, the ASHA workers, the Anganwadi workers, or your general practitioners who are seeing, you know, hundreds of patients. Uh, a day in an outpatient clinic in, in the public hospital. We just don't generate the right, right kind of, of data. And of the data that, that we do generate, there are large volumes. The, digitized, the digitization, the collation, the transmission of these data uh, are slow, they're challenging. And um, you know, when they're all collated, of course, the analytic capacity, as we discussed earlier, um, also uh, doesn't exist. At a time when transparency in, in data, you know, having information about local infection rates um, may have been a prudent strategy, um, especially given that, you know, the scientific community is aggressively moving towards uh, transparency in data, accountability in, in data, peer-reviewed journals expect scientists to now not just publish their results, but also share the database in which these results are published. It is, it is now the standard in medical journals to do so. Um, we are also faced with, with governments that are extremely worried about uh, data being misused by foreign entities, and not um, unreasonably so if you look at uh, the kinds of um, uh, cyber interventions um, governments around the world are facing, including the United States and implications um, on, on, its, on its elections as well. So, so therefore, when, when, when um, our community of scientists, uh, you know, Indian expats, um, are, are disappointed that they are unable to um, have an opportunity to leverage their expertise, even in the midst of such crises, um, by not having easy access to these data in partnership with local communities, um, it would be reasonable to say that, well, we are ignoring the fact that the government is um, justifiably worried about uh, data sharing um, across international uh, boundaries. In fact, in, in the, the private sector, uh, the world's largest data brokers have had to grapple with GDPR regulations in Europe, you know, just a year, year before the, the pandemic. Do you see the private sector uh, being able to provide solutions to safer privacy preserving approaches to data sharing, or do you see it as the problem? Um... I really like your framework, so I'm going to answer within the framework, uh, but the short answer is going to be, um, I think the private sector can do a lot more. And if you compare the United States and India, uh, all the problems you see in India, you see in, in the United States as well, but the degree is much less because of the role of the private sector and the cooperative nature or cooperative interactions between the private and the public sector in the US relative to India. So let, let's use your structure. I love it. Um, first is overburdened workers who are the ones that gather the data. The second is a 
a digital platform to handle the data. The third is sharing the data. Uh, so there's transparency. Um, uh, you can get a lot of people involved. And the fourth is analytic capacity. Now, the, India has a very large workforce, which you're exactly right. ASHA workers and the like are overwhelmed. But again, that's when we focus on the government. There's a massive unemployment problem. And there's tons of, of people that we could train in the private sector to do data gathering. And in fact, I work with organizations that do that, not just like uh, the, 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 the Morsels, the J-PALs, the Nielsens of the world that do survey work on the private sector, but also you know, nonprofits like SEWA uh, that are trying to get their workers, uh, their, their members to become data gatherers uh, as an occupation. I think if we leverage the private sector, we could do a lot more. And in the United States, we do leverage them a lot more. It's not just government workers that are doing data gathering. There's tons of, uh, again, Nielsen would be a great example, but tons of different ways that we gather data, both with labor and with electronic devices. The second is a digital platform. Here, interestingly, I think that India is behind and ahead at the same time. In the United States, the real problem with digital health is that we don't have a common platform and we have basically one, um, maybe two large players, one I think really, uh, and that player uh, has a strong incentive because of its clients to make it so it's hard to get data. We use inconsistent data set platforms, even though it's the same company, and you and I both know what company we're talking about. We use inconsistent platforms against uh, across health uh, care providers, different hospitals to make it hard for patients to transfer data for us to extract that data. Uh, and the like. And privacy is going to come in in just a second. It can be helpful, but it can also be a, a hindrance to, to effective public health and even private health. But but we don't we don't have that in India. In India, we'd have no common platform, nor do we have big data players because EHR, electronic health records, are so primitive. That's going to change. But here, the Indian government should just learn from the U.S. It should set up a common data platform, but not be super rigorous about it. It should make it enough so that people can transfer their records. They can have one hospital can use one provider of, of, of health records. Uh, another one can use another one. And there's software competition. I think that would allow you to uh, get the benefits of private competition without the monopolization uh, and friction uh, that we're seeing in the United States. And India is slowly moving there. I think that's going to be really critical. And if they do that, but then allow the private sector to get involved, uh, uh, I think you will have tremendous digital capacity in India. Um, so that's second. I, I think I'm very optimistic on that one. Where I'm very pessimistic is I think where you're pessimistic, which is on sharing. India has a terrible record about sharing data. It gathers a ton of data, as it turns out, tons and tons of data, but it takes forever to share it. For example, the 2011 census data is not still is still not fully out. It's, it's shocking, and we're doing we're going to do another census now. Um, when we do public health response and we need to figure out what is the, what is the rate of, of prevalence of disease in the population, our best population estimates are from 2011. And there are mid-year estimates that the government does, but it doesn't share that publicly. Uh, and so even basic rudimentary things we're missing. And I think the reason why the Indian government doesn't do that is in part because of accountability. Uh, this is kind of the conundrum of democracy. The concern is I'm a bureaucrat. If I release this information, it shows something bad, I'll get blamed. So what's the answer? Don't reveal any information. Don't share anything. If you don't share or you only share your successes, you can't get punished politically. Uh, and so I think that's a real issue. And in the United States, we don't have that as much. I mean, there's, we understand that, that in, in the current climate, there's some concerns about whether there's selective data sharing, but we have such institutionalized uh, uh, sharing uh, obligations uh, and, and culture that it's very hard, hard to hide things in the US relative to India. 
although even here we could get better. Um, and again, in the US, we're not as concerned about foreign, which is fine. I, I don't think that's as big a threat. In India, we're very concerned, but as I mentioned before, a lot of our uh, human capital resides abroad in the form of expatriates, uh, expats. Uh, we can't use those people if we're gonna be very skeptical of foreign. It might be that you, you stop the Chinese or the Americans or whoever you're worried about, but you also hobble yourself. The last one is analytic capacity. I'm not sure that consulting firms have all the necessary analytic capacity, but they have some. Um, but India has a great human capital uh, base, not just in, in its own universities, but also abroad that it can draw in. So again, we want the government to be more open to, to cooperation with the private sector, including the academic sector. I know, but I want to leave you with, uh, with a question that is, is close to your, your heart, and it's about um, capacity building. Um, you are uh, the co-founder of uh, International Innovation um, Corps, a social service program that sends teams of students from your university uh, to work with, with uh, government officials in India and Brazil. Um, how, how do you take an, an enterprise like that um, at, at scale? Um, how best can you effectively uh, develop this capacity uh, within these countries. I mean, it is it is uh, great to have um, access to your your expats, but uh, you know, brain power has has um, uh, never been India's uh, weakness. We have um, some of the world's best scientists and researchers um, in India, uh, working from India, and who've who've never who've never left. How do how do we best bring to bear? Uh, the latest tools and technologies and methodologies that are available elsewhere uh, to the scientific community uh, in India. Yeah, and I want to be very clear. At no point do I mean to suggest that all the all the highly capable people leave India. This, you know, you, you could make an argument for substantial brain drain back in the 60s and 70s, but I think it's very, very hard to make that argument now. The 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 the, the burst in capacity. Uh, in skills in India is remarkable, uh, especially at the right tails. Uh, we've had, both you and I both had privilege to work with just incredibly smart individuals uh, uh, that are at Indian institutions. So I, I didn't mean to say that, but I do think that there's a fundamental problem. And I would say this, not just for the scientists that are in academia, but also for um, people that do uh, just as important stuff that doesn't involve you know, math and labs, uh, which is logistics. It's an incredibly hard problem. You need to have a very sharp mind to deal with logistics issues, to get things done at scale. Uh, there are a lot of those folks in India, they happen to be in the private sector. Uh, they're the ones that run hospital chains and retail chains uh, and manage delivery services. It's remarkable, actually. And by the way, you know, a hidden story of this epidemic is the role that the private sector in logistics played in keeping everything functioning in India. That is a, a book to be written. Uh, but why is that occurring in the private sector, not in the public sector? I think that's the key issue. And it's what explains why we formed the International Innovation Corps. And it's wages. The Indian government pays low wages. It used to pay wages that were, I think, competitive with the private sector back in the 60s, maybe the early 70s. But since then, the private sector has boomed. Wages have risen. And it's very hard to attract anybody but the most diehard uh, uh, people that are most uh, diehard committed to the government into the government. So you do have a remarkable big uh, and remarkably smart IAS core, uh, but the IAS is tiny uh, relative to the population of India. If you took the total IAS population, which is in the few thousands, and you compare it to the, to the billions that are, you know, 1.4 billion that are in India, India is one of the smallest bureaucratic machineries possible. 
Now it does have, it's supplemented, I mean, India is a large employer, so it supplements it with state bureaucracies uh, and it supplements it with other workers. But again, the wages that it's paying are not fantastic uh, at the right tail. Okay, meaning for the for the people that are that that have a lot of human capital, those people are going to earn more in the private sector, so they go to the private sector, uh, except for a very small number, as I said. Now, so what do you end up have, having in India is that the private sector has the right tail of human capital, and in order to get access to that, we need to be able to either have private contracts or the government needs to increase its wages at the right tail. And I think that the the contracts are just much more feasible than increasing wages, given the culture of the Indian government. Uh, and so what we try to do is try to figure out a way to do that. So what the IIC is, is an effort to offer some wages that are somewhere between government wages and private sector wages to encourage people that are a little bit more open towards doing development work to kind of work with the government for one to three years. Uh, really, our hope is that they will get a taste of, of public policy, get a taste of public service, and then change their mind and then choose that direction. And the Indian government could help in this regard by being open to laterals. Uh, and working with other organizations like this. And I think you're seeing this more and more, uh, especially in some of the more progressive uh, parts of the Indian government. The flip side though, I also wanna point out there's the middle of the human capital distribution. I do not mean to denigrate them. They're critical if you wanna do anything at scale. While they may not set the plans, they're the ones that do the execution. What's really interesting about the Indian government is if you wanted to survive this lockdown economically, you wanted to be an Indian government employee, whether that's central or state. And the reason is because they have really good wages for that human capital level and salaries, something much closer to, to, to salaries than you know, day laborers. And so when everybody else was taking a hit, they were comfortable. Uh, it was an immense form of social protection um, and we needed that. And we will need that as we scale up our vaccine distribution program. So you know, it's a multifaceted issue depending on where in the human capital scale you are, but it does involve cooperation with the private sector or increasing wages. I want to wrap up, um, but I do want to acknowledge a couple of, you know, very cool things you, you brought up on it. One is, um, you know, there is the private sector, it's untapped. There's a mismatch, right? You have, you have skilled folks, but they're likely more in the private sector right now, and, and, and they're, they're untapped or not the right kind of expertise is tapped, and so we need to strengthen the mechanisms to do that. That doesn't mean that it happens at the expense of the public sector, you can continue to invest more in the public sector. Um, um, and and you, you, you need to because um, the markets will fail um, at, at certain times. And, and, and the pandemic is one where your millions of wage laborers uh, don't have wages. And, and then what do they have to fall back on except you know, schemes like Narega, which are meant to exactly provide that kind of social protection. I hope you raise um, really important um, issues in, in our discussion. And what I hear you say is that um, the government must rethink the way it is um, making investments um, in both the public and the private sector. A lot of the skills that we need right now and the correct kind of expertise that we need is all in the private sector. Um, and those investments need to be strengthened. At the same time, markets will fail um, during certain exigencies, as we have seen with the pandemic and you know, the millions of wage laborers that overnight lost uh, their daily wages, which were critical to keeping them out of poverty. And it were, it were the social safety nets, finally, that, that protected these people to some extent. You know, schemes like Narega, which have often been critiqued um, as, as excessive largesse, uh, proved vital in, in protecting 
people during this pandemic. Um, and and to to paraphrase or or to to be so audacious as to attempt to summarize what you were saying, you're saying that India really ought to invest in uh, the greatest asset uh, that India has, uh, and that is her people. Yeah, that's a good summary. Although the 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 way to invest in it is not entirely uh, uh, it's not simple or obvious. Uh, a lot of it is allowing the private sector to to do its own investing, including its population. Um, I think that'll be critical. One thing that we did not touch on that that's critical is not just doing it for people that are in their 20s and 30s, which are the workforce today, but you know, who are, who are the people that are gonna help India the next time there's a crisis of people that are uh, you know, zero to 20 today. And we really need to improve public education or allow a well-regulated private education system to develop that's available to a broader population uh, if we really wanna do that investment. Uh, sometimes that involves the government, like I said, stepping forward. Sometimes it involves the government stepping back and allowing the private sector uh, to do its thing. But we need to invest in these people. So one of the most interesting, um, on that topic, one of the most interesting books I've read is a recent book by, by Ajay Shah. Uh, Ajay Shah says, uh, makes the argument that um, India is a low capacity government that thinks it's high capacity. Uh, as a result, it regulates like it's Germany or the United States. Uh, but it has the capacity to enforce that like India does. Uh, the result of that is that you have overregulation, which instead of actually improving uh, education, improving consumer goods, uh, et cetera, um, ends up creating opportunities for corruption uh, because there's only the ability to do selective enforcement. Um, so we, we end up with is lots of regulations, lots of corruption, no safety, uh, no quality. Uh, to fix that, we need to acknowledge we have limited capacity and become a, a little bit more of a libertarian state. I think the key words of his, his book is libertarian by necessity, not by design. Um, if we do that for a little bit, we might be able to build up the capacity to then become a government that can handle uh, regulation, execute on regulation like Germany or the United States. Um, until then, I think we gotta sit back or cut back and rely on the private sector to help us solve a lot of these problems, including investment in human capital. Anupamalani. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Thanks, Satchit. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. Thank you for tuning in. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and check out past episodes by visiting our show page at Mittal South Asia Institute.harvard.edu slash India in Focus Podcast. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>